Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and my guest today is grateful to be pregnant and expecting her third child very soon. After receiving disappointing fertility news in her 20s, she has experienced a challenging yet triumphant fertility journey. Additionally, after a vaginal birth with her first baby and a cesarean birth with her second, she is now planning a vaginal birth after cesarean. Oh, my goodness, you could write the guide. Anna Prager, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, there's so many topics we could have in just one guest here, the Zagat Guide on different types of delivery and also an interesting fertility journey. So let's start there at the beginning. Where are you from and how did you end up in Los Angeles? I'm originally from a small town in Maine called York. I grew up there. I stayed in Maine for college, and after college, spent some time living in Israel. Then I moved to New York City, and while I was in New York, I was introduced to my now husband, who had been living in Los Angeles at the time, and I moved here for him. He likes to say he imported me here. He imported you fresh from Maine. <laughs> what did you study in college? I was a Mandarin Chinese major in my undergraduate, and then I went to graduate school for international relations. Okay, where did you pick Mandarin? From a young age, I really enjoyed learning languages, and I studied French in high school, and I was an exchange student in France when I was a senior in high school. And after learning French, I wanted to learn another language, and after an experience as a counselor with 30 Taiwanese high school girls, I became really interested in the Taiwanese culture, specifically the differences between American body image and Taiwanese body image. And I felt like the best way to really understand a culture is to learn a language. So I figured I would try Chinese and I really enjoyed it. So I made it my major. Okay. First of all, that's a fascinating whole nother topic for a whole nother podcast. So we're up to at least three with you. I suspect we'll be seeing you again. Are you conversational? I was. I majored in Chinese. I lived in China for some time. So when I graduated college, I was getting close to fluent, but unfortunately haven't used my Chinese in now over 10 years. And as I say with languages, if you don't use it, you lose it. But oh. I do understand a lot. 
it's still on one of my running lists of things that I want to pick up again or use again. So, Are you uh, watching Nihau Kailan with your kids? <laughs> I'm not, but I should be. Okay, there. slowly ease your way back into it. So you met your husband how long before you got married? About two years, I would say. I think we dated for about 11 months and then were engaged for 10 months and then got married. And were kids something you were looking at right at the beginning or was there a plan? Good question. I got married on, I would say, the youngish side. I was 26, and it was very clear between the two of us that we wanted a family. We wanted to have, you know, more than one kid. I think we had always kind of imagined having three kids. And I, I think our plan was to kind of see how it went. And soon into our marriage, I think both of us felt ready and were anxious to build our family. So we really didn't wait too long after we got married. And were you actively blocking babies before that or just being careful? I had been on the birth control pill for probably since I was 16 years old. So I have okay. been on the pill for like nine years. That's actively blocking. That's a solid goalie. And then you just stopped the pill? I think I stopped and, you know, had been told by my gynecologist that especially after having been on contraceptives for so long, it can take the body a while to kind of regulate. And so I think the doctor had kind of suggested that maybe take a month or two before actively trying and then, you know, go, and then go for the cold. Yeah. So I think I probably followed those instructions if I recall correctly. Did you get pregnant pretty quickly? No, I would say we'd been trying for about six months with no luck. And I felt like after six months, perhaps there was an issue and the first thing I did was I read a book. It's called Taking Charge of Your Fertility. I've heard the book, but I haven't read it. It's really interesting. I always recommend it to all of my girlfriends who are in the process of trying to conceive because it taught me a lot about when I started to have kids, I don't think I, before that I really realized exactly when I ovulated or you know the importance of the timing. I don't think I really ever knew. And so this book really outlines a woman's menstrual cycle and the different parts of it and when you're most fertile and when you're not fertile and it provides a whole way of tracking your temperature to know when you're close to ovulation or when you've ovulated and so you can really use the method actually as birth control or as a proactive way to try to get pregnant. So I was following this method, I was tracking my temperature and I was finding, I almost kind of diagnosed myself that my temperature wasn't rising after ovulation when it technically should be. So I kind of myself realized, hmm, something doesn't seem quite right here. So I went to my gynecologist who said, it's only been six months, you're 26 years old, here's some Clomid. So I tried two months of Clomid, that didn't work. Then he gave me Letrozole. And after I took Letrozole, a similar medication to Clomid, I did get pregnant, but I had a miscarriage. I'm sorry. After all that trying, it must have been especially hard to have a miscarriage. How many weeks long do you remember? Well, what was really interesting about my miscarriage is that I knew from very early on that it was not going to be a viable pregnancy because the doctor measured my HCG levels and measured them, you know, 48 hours apart and saw they weren't doubling. So the doctor suspected that it wasn't going to be viable. So it wasn't like, I guess I never really had too much of an opportunity to get too excited. Obviously, when I first saw a positive pregnancy test, that was really amazing after not having seen that for so many months. But I knew soon after that it wasn't and be viable and ended up having a DNC probably around seven or eight weeks. So was there a blame for that or is it just run of the mill bad luck? 
No, it was simply that, you know, I think, you know, one in three pregnancies and in miscarriage, you know, that the doctor wasn't concerned. He said he thought it was a great sign that I got pregnant and encouraged me to try again with using Letrozole again. Mm -hmm. I think if you know people have a bunch of kids, you know, most of them, myself and my wife included, have a miscarriage somewhere along the way. It's bad luck that it was your first and after so many months of trying. And I don't think I even, until I had my, and I think this happens to a lot of women, until you have a miscarriage, you don't even realize how common it is, you know? And when I ended up sharing it with family or friends, I learned, you know, so many people had had miscarriages that I didn't even realize. So it is so common. And I think, fortunately, now in our culture, it's becoming, you know, more talked about. It's it's not as stigmatized as it had been. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I think some, even just the past couple of years, some celebrities have shared their miscarriages online and, you know, they have large following. So if nothing else, people become aware of the fact that they happen and maybe learn a little bit more that they're not so uncommon. And it's almost like a typical part of fertility, which is your body. A lot has to go right. And if it doesn't, your body has to kind of recognize that it's not going right and reject it and try again next time. So you try it again with medicated cycles. I tried again, and I, if I recall what happened was, you know, we waited a month and had a miscarriage. I waited a month and tried again. And the next month, again, I was still kind of tracking my cycle. And after when ovulation was supposed to have happened, I, I got my period like three days later. And so I knew that that's not, you know, there's no way a pregnancy is going to happen if I'm having a menstrual cycle that's only 15 days long. And so my reaction to that was, okay, I think I need some more assistance beyond just my regular OBGYN. And so I had a consult with a fertility doctor that was just recommended to me by a girlfriend who she had been seeing. And she um, you know, did a full workup on both me and my husband to see what was going on. What did you find? <laughs> so we found that she diagnosed me with a condition called diminished ovarian reserves or premature ovarian failure. Oh. Uh, Basically, that even though I was 26 years old at the time, my ovaries were prematurely aging, and the amount of eggs I have or I had at the time uh, weren't nearly as many as I should have had. And they, they're able to tell this by uh, specific hormone levels. The two they measure are your FSH and your AMH. And my FSH was more than double what it should be. And my AMH was very low. Your AMH, you want to actually to be around, I think, for a 26-year-old woman, it's around three or four, something like that. And mine was like one. Oh, wow. So my hormone levels were not where they should be for someone who's 26 years old. Oh, so essentially your fertility window is closing a lot faster than Exactly. It so it was immediately, you know, we don't know if this means you're going to go into menopause soon. There are, you know, a lot of unknowns as to possible fast decline, a slow decline. She didn't know, but the hormone levels suggested that at that moment in time, things weren't weren't good. Well, it's not a crazy cliffhanger because I already spilled the beans that you're pregnant with your third, so we know you get past it somehow. Let's take a little break and find out how your journey continued. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered 
Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Anna. And you, 26 years old, would think that you have 15 years at least, you know, left to consider having babies, how many babies, space them out however you want to. But after having some unusual cycles, a pregnancy that ended in miscarriage, and then more unusual cycles, you went to see a reproductive endocrinologist and found out that your ovaries were aging very quickly. So what do they recommend to do at that point? So the doctor who I was seeing at that time basically said to me, you need to do IVF immediately in bank embryos. You want to have you know, more than one biological child. So her recommendation was to create as many embryos as possible and freeze them. And it was obviously very shocking to get this diagnosis and to go from, to have to jump into IVF. I really didn't know much about IVF. So I got a second opinion from a, a doctor who I ended up using whose approach was much more take it month by month and work with whatever my body is looking like, make a decision based on that month. She felt as though, even though I had this diagnosis, I, you know, because I was still just 26 years old, hopefully the eggs that I did have were of decent quality. So she felt like, you know, putting my body into multiple rounds of retrievals to create and bank embryos was a little bit extreme. And so her recommendation was, Let's start this month and we'll see how many follicles you have and we'll make a decision about what to do. And so the first month or two, we tried a few IUIs, intrauterine inseminations, which didn't work. And so she eventually said, Were okay. those IUIs with medical stimulation or just yes. natural cycles? Yes, yes. With, with medical stimulation. Injectable or orals? Injectables. Yeah. Okay, so so just in case people don't understand what you're saying, you would take medication that would try to stimulate your ovaries to produce more than usual, and then take a semen sample from your husband. You said you tested your husband. Everything come out textbook over there? Perfect. Oh, yeah. So take a semen sample. They probably spin it and clean it up a little bit, and then right at the right time, it's literally like a medical version of the Martha Stewart turkey baster, where they basically take a little medical catheter, insert it, probably ultrasound guided, right to where the egg would be coming down, and then just kind of push the head of the syringe so the sperm literally are waiting there for when you ovulate. Do they trigger your ovulation too or just wait for natural ovulation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my doctor also felt as though in addition to the diminished ovarian reserves, another problem I had was that I didn't ovulate properly. So she felt like it was very important that she would be the one to trigger ovulation to make sure it occurred at the right time. And you said you did a few cycles of IUI? I think I did two. Her next recommendation was to go to IVF. So I started an IVF cycle and about 
probably six or seven days, maybe five or six days into the injections, my hormones, the levels were just not coming back at numbers that she was happy with. She felt as though the numbers indicated that the eggs weren't great quality. So there was going to be no reason to go in and retrieve eggs that, you know, weren't going to be strong. So she canceled the IVF cycle, which uh, for anyone who's gone through IVF knows how hard that is after you've spent several days, a tremendous amount of money <laughs> trying to get to that point. So I remember being really disappointed and feeling very much like if my body can't even respond to IVF. You know, am I really going to be able to have biological children? Because there's, there's not really much past that, right? Yeah. In terms of the world of assisted reproductive technology, that's, that's the end of the line. Outside of using a different eggs or a surrogate or something like that, but using your body, your eggs, your husband's sperm, that's kind of like the end of the line. If that doesn't work, we don't have what right. to offer. Right. So I remember at that point even thinking, okay, is, is, are, you know, I think I even asked her, are we at the point where we need to talk about donor eggs? And I remember she said, you know, not yet. Again, her approach was to take every month exactly, you know, do whatever we could given the circumstances. And she didn't want to waste the month. She said, okay, this month isn't good for IVF, but you could still try naturally. You know, she said, I'll trigger you so you ovulate properly and you can try naturally. And it's a very small chance, but again, why waste a month? So that's what I did. And lo and behold, I got pregnant. Oh, yeah. What a nice surprise. <laughs> I mean, that's the opposite. Then you're really not expecting it. So, yeah, I was not, you know, I, I had absolutely no expectation it was going to work as, as given what happened with the IVF cycle. Oh, my God. Even though it's three babies ago, I'm so happy for you. Uh, I'm trying to picture your response when you got a positive pregnancy test. Yeah, yeah. It was um, really amazing. And it was a, thank God, very easy, healthy pregnancy. Were you, because, you know, I met you with your second pregnancy, we'll get into that soon, and you are just a super fit, healthy person that makes me feel bad about myself in every possible way. Were you like that before you conceived your first child? Yeah, I was, but um, while I was going through infertility, I was also trying to do a lot of different self-care methods to try to boost my fertility. I was on a very special diet and I was doing acupuncture and I remember my acupuncturist actually suggested to me that she felt like a lot of the high intensity workouts that I was doing was not helpful and mm -hmm. she felt like I really needed to work on relaxing and still you know exercising but not high intensity so I was doing a lot of walking that was the one mm -hmm. thing I was really doing a lot of when I did eventually conceive in my first pregnancy. And that's probably to some degree why your pregnancy was a dreamy. Did you get any of the symptoms, the nausea, vomiting, fatigue, or? Very little, not very minimal nausea at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I had some sacral pain at one point, but it, it really was quite easy. How old were you at that point? I was 27, I guess, about okay. the time. Still pretty young, I mean, according to uh, national averages on first baby. How was your birth? <laughs> to answer that question, I have to talk about the labor and then the birth. Because okay. say my labor was kind of your textbook dream labor. I went into labor at 39 weeks, five days. From the moment I went into labor, my contractions were like five minutes apart. So I went right to the hospital. It was very fast. And I got to the hospital, and I labored there. Was there who was with you? 
my husband and my doula. I had a doula. Oh, great. And I got to the hospital around probably 8 o'clock in the evening, and my daughter was born at midnight. So, oh, wow. That's like just the right amount. Of, I mean, people who give birth faster than that tend to kind of describe it as too fast, and people who give substantially slower than that describe it as too slow. That seems like almost like a perfect amount of time. Yeah, it really was. I, you know, it's so funny because my expectation I had planned, I imagined laboring at home for like 10 hours and having my doula be at my house and then going to the hospital. And of course, as with most things in life, you can't plan for it. And it was completely unexpected. But the way that turned out was really great. And then I think when I, once I started pushing, I think after pushing, she was born 15 minutes later. But after I gave birth to her, I had um, a significant amount of hemorrhaging. At the time, I don't think I really realized what was going on, but it became an issue the next morning when I got up to go to the bathroom and passed out. Oh, wow. You were still hemorrhaging overnight? No, not overnight. The the doctor was able to stop the bleeding. To stop the bleeding. Okay. It's also kind of weird with a faster labor. Usually, I'm a young, healthy person with a fast labor. I wouldn't expect that. So what I had was a sulcus tear which is a internal um, tear that happens relatively high up. Hmm. So from what I understand, it was probably something as random as perhaps the way she came down the birth canal, like her elbow might have just moved in a way that caused this tear. Oh, wow. I think that what had happened with the doctor, there's a lot of bleeding and he had a hard time locating where the tear was. And so it took a while to find it. And that's why I think I bled so much. Did you have transfusion? I did. Oh, well. Okay, and then, but you had a transfusion before you passed out? After. Oh, so once you passed out, they realized you were pretty low. Okay, and that was the next morning? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so after the transfusion, did you bounce back? Yes, but I definitely had had a rough recovery after that. I was in a lot of discomfort and pain for, I would say, at least two weeks after birth. I was pretty immobile and, yeah, just in in a lot of pain. I would have, again, expected for you, because you were young and fit and healthy, to kind of bounce back. So do you think that some of that was from the hemorrhaging? Absolutely. Just because, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but my C-section recovery was like 10 times easier than my vaginal recovery, which you don't often hear. Yeah, I hear it once in a while. I was up walking a few hours after my C-section with, you know, I, I do think that the reason why the recovery was so bad was because of the tearing. All right. Before we go into another break, I got to figure out, I mean, so curious about getting pregnant again, you know, after the journey you had the first time, were you nervous that it would take a long time again or that you would have to do interventions? I mean, after all, even though you were stimulated, you just kind of cut the stimulation, just had the baby the old fashioned way. Right. I was, and I very much recognized that I may need assistance. I may not, and I would do what I needed to do. So my doctor suggested breastfeeding for six months and then coming back and kind of reevaluating and see where things were with my body, and so that's what I did. And I went back to see the doctor when my daughter was six months, and I had stopped breastfeeding to try to see what we needed to do to get pregnant again. I would have preferred to wait longer. I wasn't really ready to have another baby. But again, there was this concern and pressure of time and how much time do I have left. And my hormone levels weren't so great. And they thought for a short time that it was possible because of the hemorrhaging, I had developed a condition called Sheehan syndrome, which is 
very rare and can cause pituitary damage um, and is most often occurs in women who have a significant amount of bleeding during birth. Right, so your oxygen levels are low and your pituitary gets cut off from oxygen, a little hypoxic. Exactly. So so that was then introduced. But luckily, thank God, several weeks later... Well, you were able to breastfeed, right? So for six months, so... Yes, that was exactly something that confused my doctors, thinking, hmm, had this happened, breastfeeding probably would have been an issue for you. So Mm -hmm. we don't know why for, you know, a few months it's possible that... When I had stopped breastfeeding, it's possible my body just needed a few months to kind of re-regulate and start working again and, and having a menstrual cycle again. But for a few months, that added a whole level of complications just to trying to get pregnant because at that point, there was no way I could get pregnant naturally. I would have had to do IVF. But eventually, a few months later, things improved and I wasn't diagnosed with Sheehan syndrome and we decided to try IVF again. How'd it go? It worked on the first time. Oh, wow. Amazing. And when you did IVF, did you put in one embryo or two? One. We did a fresh transfer, which from what I understand, I don't think it's so common these days. I think most people do frozen transfers. I think people oftentimes you know, want to do the genetic testing to put it in. So to do that, you have to freeze the embryo. But I was talking to a reproductive endocrinologist, and he also felt like, you know, based on experience, that giving your body a chance to rest after all the stimulation, even though the frozen, in some ways, you know, has less of a chance of taking than a fresh, that your body might be more receptive to it. So, I don't know, there's pros and cons to both. But just to clarify what you're saying is, in an IVF, the first thing that happens is, just like an IUI, you stimulate using injectable hormones, you stimulate the body to overproduce follicles that grow and, and you go harvest the eggs. You go in and kind of take all the uh, eggs out of each follicle, mature eggs, hopefully. Then you kind of look at them under a microscope and this is where it's different than IUI because you've taken the eggs out of the body. You can examine them. You can either have them swim together with some semen, with some sperm, or you can actually inject a sperm into each egg and then watch them grow you can let them grow enough to be able to take off a couple of cells and do some genetic testing if you want to. And then at the end, you have this blastocyst, this fertilized egg that starts to grow to a certain size called blastocyst. And then you can either freeze it and wait until you're ready to implant them, or you can go right ahead and implant one or two right away. Uh, The benefit of implanting one is you're less likely to have multiples like twins. The benefit of implanting two is it's more likely to take. But you said you did a fresh cycle and put in one embryo. Correct. And it took. And it took. Another happy surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, let's take another little break. When we come back, we'll find out how your pregnancy number two went when you ended up with a cesarean birth. Maybe you chose it. We don't know. And then we'll talk about this pregnancy number three. Curious plans want to know how you got pregnant again and how you're planning for the third type of delivery. We'll be right back. (laughs) Hey, everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and 
third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the podcast. We're talking to Anna, who's pregnant again. I mean, right now, but also in our story. How was your second pregnancy? I'm good. Similar to my first pregnancy. Um, easy. Teeny bit of nausea at the beginning, but that was really it. You know, I did a lot of prenatal Pilates during that pregnancy, which I think at the time I thought was good for me, but perhaps when we talk about what happened later in my pregnancy, perhaps that wasn't so helpful. My daughter ended up being breached, which was something that I found out at 36 weeks. So really far into my pregnancy and something that I had not even considered would happen. And so that was jarring to learn that at 36 weeks and to have to navigate that. But beyond that, it was a easy, smooth pregnancy. Yeah. So 36 weeks, obviously not a lot of time to react. Did your doctor offer you some options? She offered me a C-section. I mean, she said that she would not deliver um, a breech baby vaginally, which I think is the consensus, probably what, 98% of doctors in the country, something like that. Yeah. But she did offer me suggestions of ways to flip the baby. And I spent a good, probably, you know, two to three weeks doing everything in my power to get my daughter to flip. Yeah, so this is how we meet. One of the things you explored was chiropractic and massage work to try to open up your pelvis and see if we can make some, you know, obviously your body can handle a head down baby because you already had a head down baby. So there are certain things that we know we can rule out in terms of the cause of the breach, right? Sometimes it's just functional. You're too stiff, tight, and rigid, and either the baby doesn't want to go head down because of that, or they're just not able to. Your body's not accommodating the movement. It's uh, resisting the movement. In your case, I think we have this term in the office that we use called athletic pelvic syndrome, which is where you have a combination of muscles or tendons in your low back, hips, and pelvis that are very, very, very strong and also very, very tight. And this is what you walked into the office with. And there was a baby inside you who seemed happy as a clam in the position they were in. And just, you know, the amount of time there was to try to make a significant change in your body because it was so, you know, in that category, athletic pelvic syndrome was not enough, even if it would take two weeks. By then, you'd be 39 weeks from where we started and the baby's getting bigger and bigger and generally harder to flip at that point. Did you also do the medical external cephalic version? I did. And no luck. No luck. <laughs> I saw you. I did the version. I did acupuncture. I did spinning babies exercises. I really did um, everything I could to, to flip it. But, but as you said, I think that was partially, you know, discovering this at 36 weeks. Yeah, it didn't give me much time. In fact, had I learned maybe around. 33 weeks, maybe that, you know, the baby would have been smaller, perhaps I would have had better luck, or maybe not, you know, I, knowing my daughter, she, <laughs> <laughs> she wants things a certain way, and there's not a lot of flexibility, so it's possible she was comfortable in that position, and that was it, and there was nothing I could do to change it. 
So. Yeah, generally speaking, I love for people to find out around 32, 33 weeks, because at that point, around 90% of the babies plus are head down. So even though there's a good chance your baby will still turn, even spontaneously, it's just good to know. So if there are simple things you can do to start helping the cons along, then you can start doing them earlier than later. So you live in a town where there are doctors who deliver breech babies vaginally. Was that ever a thought for you? So you had mentioned it to me. I didn't even know it was a possibility. And, you know, something that I've learned in my, you know, starting in a journey to get pregnant and through all my infertility is that there's not a lot of control in getting pregnant in the whole process. But one thing that's very empowering is to have information. And so when you told me that that was a possibility, my inclination was, well, I should go meet this doctor and get information, see if I'm even a candidate for it. And I can ultimately, you know, make a choice that works best for me. So I I made an appointment with Dr. Brock, who he would recommend it to me. And he, um, he actually felt like I was a very strong candidate for a vaginal breech birth. But ultimately, I decided to have the C-section. I think that the two main reasons that come to mind are that it was so late in my pregnancy, the idea of switching doctors and just having to really make such a large change, which just felt very anxiety provoking. And also there was a fear given the bleeding I had had that part of me felt like, well, you know, maybe this is a sign that I'm just not supposed to have, you know, another vaginal birth. And it seemed like it was introducing a level of risk that I wasn't comfortable with. And so I decided to go into the defect. Yeah. As you said earlier, though, I love the fact that you were able to choose which mode you wanted. And you said your C-section recovery was great. How was the actual cesarean? It was, I mean, thank God in terms of, from a medical perspective, it was uneventful and quick and no complications and easy. And in terms of that, it was great. In terms of the experience, I would say it was disappointing. You know, I think that there's the process of giving birth I didn't feel the same way I felt when I had a vaginal birth. It's obviously you're in a sterile operating room. It's cold. It's impersonal. I don't know. I think in my mind as I was preparing for the C-section, I was kind of imagining a C-section, but I I had been imagining it in a labor and delivery room, Mm -hmm. which I had remembered from my first birth. And so I remember when they, you know, wheel me in and I'm on this operating table. It just, you know, it's surgery. It is 100% surgery. And so I know that, you know, Cedar's, there's this whole movement to do something called a gentle cesarean, trying to make it as similar to a vaginal birth experience as possible, but it felt disappointing. It didn't feel like it's the most, I don't want to use the word natural, because I think any way that you have to bring your baby into the world is obviously natural, but it didn't evoke the same feelings that I had when I had given birth vaginally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's birthful. I've heard other women say it didn't feel natural. And I think whatever feeling you have to it as you're feeling, it doesn't take away from somebody else's experience. People also have said after having a vaginal birth with the first one and the necessary one with the second one, just surreal is the word that comes up a lot. It was hard for the mind to catch up to the fact that the baby's out now because there was no transition in between. So that's a common sentiment. Even for my husband, I think it was a challenge. And we were talking about it recently. And, you know, he felt as though, you know, they told baby out and they rushed the baby somewhere else. And you don't have the skin contact as soon as you would, as you would in a vaginal birth. My OBGYN told me that at Cedars now, I think it's a new thing where, assuming there are no complications, you can have skin to skin. They do try, yeah. But that wasn't an option, I don't think, when I did this three years ago. 
Yeah, it's been evolving. You know, they are trying to make the processes as natural as possible, as natural as you want it within the realm of the surgery. So they try to focus less on the surgery and more on the birth, even down to the terminology, calling it a cesarean birth instead of a cesarean section, which I think does have implications on the overall feel. Here we are pregnant again. So curious how you conceived round three. So I had always heard these stories of, you know, women who are going through years of infertility and issues and failed cycles. And finally they get pregnant using IVF and then they have a baby and four months later conceive naturally. And I think I, perhaps you have as well. I've heard a lot of the situation happening to a lot of different women. I think there's always this hope that it might happen for me too. I think there's always this hope that you know, my body might show me that it can work in a natural way. And when I least expected it, it did. And it was a complete surprise. I, I really didn't think that it would ever happen naturally without any assistance. And so it was a surprise. I, I found that I was pregnant the same day as the the shutdown back in March, 14th or 15th. So it's a lot. Oh, wow. A purely COVID pregnancy. Yeah. Meaning not that you got COVID, but that you've been pregnant, like the whole time you've known you're pregnant, we've yeah. been in a pandemic. Exactly. So, wow. and, I, and, you know, maybe I smile when I think, you know, of course, I'm going to have this natural pregnancy that I've always wanted and during a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> so you're at home with uh, two very young ones <laughs> and uh, not able to go out too much. But uh, I'll tell you what, you uh, <laughs> you look strong and healthy and happy, and it seems like you made the best of it so far. Yeah, it obviously hasn't been, for so many people, it, it's been challenging. I'm very lucky in that right now in, in Los Angeles, preschools are considered essential services, so they're open. So oh, that's amazing. Both of my girls are actually in school now, and I recognize that that's not the situation for most people, so I'm, I really am trying not to take that for granted, but I... It's great for the whole family, for them, for me, for everyone. So you're at the end here, um, 35 weeks now, and is the baby head down? Yes. Okay. Confirmed today. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. So that's a relief. And um, your doctor is supportive of vaginal birth after cesarean. Yours is kind of interesting because you'll also have already had a vaginal birth. So it's vaginal birth after vaginal birth and cesarean, which is a little different because, you know, I think the first time a baby comes through, it's sort of like somebody walking through a thick cornfield for the first time. It generally takes time. Yours was pretty quick. And then the second time it tends to go faster and smoother, uh, reliably, but not always. And so the fact that you've had a cesarean, but you've also had that great vaginal birth beforehand seems to put you in a category of pretty high success and low risk. I hope so. Yeah. And it's the same doctor who did your cesarean last time? Is no. That oh, you switched doctors. Okay. But the doctor that you're with is supportive of vaginal birth after cesarean. Are there any strings attached to it, like things that have to be? No. You know, we had a conversation um, recently to talk exactly about kind of the question you just asked. I wanted to know, you know, what I want to go in knowing, you know, if X, Y, and Z are to occur, why might I need a C-section? And she, you know, very much said that she'll do everything in her power, you know, assuming that things are looking okay, she'll let me go till 41 weeks. They don't usually um, induce with feedbacks using medications like Pitocin, but she said, you know, if I'm showing signs of dilation, that she would um, try to naturally induce me. She could try to naturally induce me if they had got to that point. So 
She, I what does that mean, naturally inducing you? Uh, like she could break my water. Oh, or sweep your hands or something like that. Uh, but she, assuming that there really, she didn't really have any strings attached to that. You know, I assume if perhaps during the birth, there's obviously a complication of, of some sort. I recognize that obviously C-section may need to happen, but I felt like she was very much, even when I was at times expressing anxiety around the VBAC because of my hemorrhaging and, and all of that, she still very much said she didn't see why, doesn't think I'm at any greater risk for that happening again, and that shouldn't be taken into account when deciding whether or not a VBAC, you know, should or shouldn't happen to me. Yeah, so it sounds like your doctor is pretty VBAC friendly. The hospital certainly is very VBAC friendly. And uh, you, again, seem like a good candidate for it. So hopefully things will go really well for you. I do have this other question. Are you having a doula again this time? I don't think I'm going to have a doula um, during the birth. My husband and I have been meeting with the doula that we used during my first birth just to prepare for labor because we're a little bit rusty since it's been, you know, almost five years since I've had that birth. We were talking to her to help kind of prepare ourselves and to remind him of things he can do to support me. And also process some of the anxieties and fears just from, I think every birth experience comes with a little bit of stuff that you need to process. So working through some of those fears. I think if he and I can both go in confident and calm, um, you know, that's obviously hopefully going to set us up for success rather than going in fearful. So that's kind of what we're trying to work on now is getting through that. And yeah, so my plan right now is just to have him with me. And it's also kind of, again, you have the choice <laughs> at the last minute because the hospital wasn't even allowing doulas for a while. So it's cool that it's your choice to not bring a doula with you if you don't want to. All right. Your journey is really fascinating. I'm, I'm grateful for you for coming on and for sharing so honestly and openly for your fertility experiences. I think they're inspiring, actually, because you got some pretty devastating news early on. And uh, here you are about to have your third baby. Has the journey changed you at all? That fertility journey changed you at all? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's in many ways, it's, it's just become a big piece of my identity. You know, I think that my infertility in so many ways, just, you know, I, I ended up leaving, I had been working and I ended up leaving my job to be able to focus on getting pregnant. So I, I think that for the past five years, it's really been one of the biggest pieces of me. And, and it's certainly um, given me a sense of appreciation and gratitude for, for my children that I'm not sure I would have had I not, you know, gone through the struggles that I had. So it's absolutely change me, I think, for the better. I mean, you're kind of amazing to know and to work with, and I was inspired by you before I knew all these details, and now even more inspiring. I think the audience will probably send me a lot of hate mail if I don't invite you back to share how this birth goes. <laughs> so I'm hoping that you will come back after what is going to be a great experience. I'm sending all the positive mojo and birth energy I can your way. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Such a pleasure. At home, thanks for listening to our podcast. If you like the program, share us with your friends, leave us some feedback in your podcast app. And if you like more pregnancy and parenting related media, visit us online at informedpregnancy.com. Kids
This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.